Paphos and came to Persia in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what it is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, 
many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. We thank you, God, for your word. By your Holy Spirit, help us as we tackle the text. Lord, we thank you that you are powerful and able. Lord, help us to pay attention, especially where we need it. Help us to interact properly and to do a work in our lives and hearts, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a, a soccer classic that's played in Spain twice a year. Sometimes it's in Barcelona. Well, once it's in Barcelona, then it's in Madrid. And uh, they call it El Clasico. It's the, uh, the Barcelona versus Real Madrid game. I did not realize this until just this weekend. There's a, instead of El Clasico, in the, in the American uh, soccer, in MLS, the two Los Angeles teams play each other, and I thought this was pretty funny and pretty clever. They call that one El Trafico. And so, so last night was El Trafico, and it was the, the LA Galaxy versus uh, LAFC, and it's become quite the rivalry. And um, I tuned in for the second half. I try not to do a whole lot of sports on a Saturday night, and I tuned in even with the volume down because there's one player who I love. Uh, I'm so interested in, in his life and his career. Uh, it's a, a man from Mexico. They call him Chicharito, Javier Hernandez. Uh, Chicharito played for Manchester United a while back when he was a younger man. And as he's gotten older, he's come back uh, to the United States, as, as some of the greats usually do, and they finish out their careers here. And they provide leadership, and they sell tickets and all of that. And as a Mexican down there in in L.A., um, I'm, I'm sure he does a little of both. Um, he had a bad year last year. He was injured. His grandfather died. It seemed over for him. And the first game of the season, Chicharito came out and kicked a couple of goals. And the post-match interview, he's crying. And he says, all of the goals I, I score from now on, they're for my grandfather who loved me and poured into me, and they're for my children. And he came out and got a hat trick the next game. And, and he just, I, I, I don't normally would not even cheer for an L.A. team, but I, I kind of like him to do good. 
And he would say, my whole life has been leading to this. All of these circumstances, the grandfather, the Europe, the decline, the injury, the coming back, everything to help me, it's come together for this. And and maybe you felt like that in your life where everything has been leading to something. And there's a moment. Soldiers felt it on the battlefield when they died and, and laid down their lives for their not just their fellow soldiers, but for the principles uh, that they were fighting for, for freedom, for those uh, bigger principles. And they say, my life was a preparation for this. Or maybe uh, you see this in, in uh, couples, Christian couples, uh, who are getting married and they've dated in their choice of a life partner. They both look at their life experiences and they look at the failed relationships and they look at the spiritual victories and they look at areas where they're strong and areas where they're weak and and they look at each other and they say, is God leading us to this, to put us together? Uh, My whole life has been leading to this. It's a a phrase we've used and and seen, uh, maybe in the jobs that we take and we say, this training good and bad, all of it. God has been behind all of this, and and there's a reason for this. Biblically, we see it. And there's many examples in Scripture where the preparation has been there. The first person I thought of was Queen Esther and how God worked behind the scenes with Vashti and her principled uh, refusal to go in and parade herself. It had cost her the the, the queen uh, position. And here comes Esther, And there's this runoff and all of these things. And here she's Jewish and no one knows it. And God uses her uh, during a time of great crisis for his people. Remember that famous phrase in the book of Esther where uh, Mordecai says, uh, who knows that you were not born for such a time as this. And you see how God, the author of history, brings circumstances together. And it all leads to one thing. I titled this because I send these things to Brenda not as early in the week as I should, but earlier than I'm really ready. And so I I, I said, here's a a sermon title. It's all leading to this. As I thought about it, uh, maybe another way or a better sermon title would be the long view. I want us to think about and take what we call the long view of things and not the short view of things, even as we look at Scripture. What's the long view? And this morning, we see Paul taking the long view and preaching and teaching the long view. God is the author of history. And I have the same hope for us that Paul seems to have had when he preached this famous sermon during his first journey. I want us to see Jesus' life in light of God's unfolding story, and then I want us to respond appropriately to that thought. That's the goal. Four sections in the sermon this morning. Setting, sermon, salvation, and static. First of all, the setting. The first missionary journey starts out by talking about how here Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos. They came to Persia and Pamphylia, and John, that's John Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. He bailed out on them. Doesn't talk about the reasons why here. People speculate about why. 
Uh, we don't know why. We know he left. We also know that it was not with the blessing of all of them, particularly Paul, because later on, when it came time to have the next journey, a, a further journey, Barnabas wanted to take his cousin, John Mark, with them. Paul said, no, he left us before. Uh, Acts 15, 36 through 40 tells us a little bit about that conflict over John Mark leaving them. It says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who'd withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Mark probably didn't even know what he was causing when he left. A lot of times people are part of fellowships, and they leave and they go, well, no one will miss me anyway. It's not that big of a deal. In this case, it was a big deal. Uh, Maybe not even spoken of then as they were going about uh, the rest of the mission. When it came up later, there was... There was friction and there was tension. The equilibrium of the team was busted up. And that's part of the setting. The work of spreading the gospel would go on. But there was something unspoken at the time. There was a tension. Where's Mark? Oh, he's not with us anymore. It's no little thing to just pick up and go. Pray. Seek. Talk understand that you are probably more vital and important than you realize. It's part of the setting. It says they went to Antioch, but it was not that Antioch. There were, I I read there were like five or six Antiochs. Antiochus was a a king back then, and the son uh, would name a lot of places Antioch. It's like if I told you I was born in Norfolk. Well, I was born in Norfolk, Norfolk, Nebraska. Two Norfolks, probably a whole lot more Norfolks than that. Uh, It's different. And so as you think about them going to Antioch, you're like, oh, wait, there was an established church there. I've read that they leave Antioch. Where are they at? No, this was in Antioch on the edge of Galatia. And so when you read Paul's letters to the Galatians, uh, understand as he's writing to this church that that was established uh, in that region then, Think of that Antioch. It's a different Antioch. In the synagogue, we talked about this last week, the strategy that Paul would employ when he would go into towns, he and Barnabas and he and Silas, would go first to the religious people, people that were open to the idea of of, of one God and not polytheistic type of of a belief system. People who said, These are the scriptures. Even though they had a wrong understanding of the scriptures, uh, there was a base from which to start. He went to the religious people who needed Jesus. Uh, We understand clearly religious and non-religious people are dying and on their way to hell. Religion does not save you. Even having a Bible does not save you. Even having parts of the Bible memorized, as many of them did, does not save you. Even saying this 
parts of the Bible that I have memorized is true does not save you. And they went to the religious people first. That was the method. And so the setting is he came in, and just like we, uh, we'll, we'll have a reading, we, we do this. If, if the sermon text is from the New Testament, we'll hear the Old Testament read. The sermon text is from the Old Testament. We'll hear the New Testament. We're reading and we're trying to grasp the whole Bible. They did that in the synagogue. They would read from the law and the prophets. And then if someone was there who was qualified, they would say, enlighten us, speak to us. They'd probably heard about Paul, maybe by his uh, conversation uh, in the vestibule before they came in or, or maybe by reputation. But they thought, here's a rabbi. He, he was, remember, he was trained at the feet of Gamaliel. They said, tell us. Teach us. And he got up and he spoke. So there's your setting. A little tension on the team. The gospel being spread and proclaimed for the first, uh, not for the first time because it had been through there, but, but for the first time by Paul and his missionary team in a synagogue, a church service essentially. Uh, speculation is that he spoke from Deuteronomy or that the reading was Deuteronomy 1 and Isaiah 1 just based on Paul's remarks, but we have no way of knowing what was read. But Paul got up to preach. Now we understand the setting of the sermon. Picture yourself sitting in the synagogue. Picture yourself as, as a, uh, maybe a friendly Gentile, but most likely a Jew, uh, sitting there listening to Paul's sermon. Of what did Paul's sermon consist John Stott pointed out three things about the sermon. For one, that we need to know and understand. As Luke is recording Peter's sermon and Paul's sermon, they are essentially the same message. There are people, uh, scholars, and they are scholars. They go, well, Peter preached one thing, Paul preached the other. I like Jesus, but I don't like Paul. I don't know. Paul and his writings... And his message is consistent with everything else in the scripture. There's not competing uh, voices from which you have the option and the luxury of choosing who you like the best. First thing Stott pointed out, Paul's sermon was consistent with the gospel message that you see throughout Acts. Second thing, Jews were offered the gospel first and then the Gentiles. Third thing, and this is important for us to hear and understand as we think about our context of preaching and our church and the gospel as we want to declare that uh, to the people that we love that live around us. The third thing is this. Paul was not an innovator. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Paul didn't get so bored with his message. He says, I've got to change things up just for my own sake. I've got to innovate a little bit because this is getting boring to me. Didn't say that. Paul, only what God had promised in Scripture and had now fulfilled in Jesus. And how important is it for us as a church, as you listen, as members who've committed to say, I am uh, committed to the purity and peace of the church and that doctrinal purity, how important is it for elders to listen and make sure uh, that old Pastor Dave isn't just uh, getting bored and going down some rabbit trail and starting something else in addition to the gospel. I would hope I wouldn't just say the gospel's not true. 
that I know. Maybe let's add a little of this, let's add a little of that, let's do a little of these things. No, Paul said the gospel, and he preached the gospel, and these recorded sermons were the gospel. God, forgive us for every time we've compromised the gospel of Jesus for the approval of a worldly crowd and for what's popular these days. Later, Paul, before he died, would write a letter to a young pastor. Paul was a missionary. He was a trainer of pastors. He was a theologian. He was, he was God's person. Uh, but God had other people than Paul. Paul sent a man named Timothy to be a pastor. And in 2 Timothy, uh, at the end of, of Paul's life, he would write to him and he would say to Timothy as the preacher, he said, preach the word. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We've got to make sure that in a world where people want to change and adapt to the times and incorporate uh, and preach from the, the gospel of whatever, you know, name the paper, the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. That's not the gospel. That's not our text. The gospel is the gospel. Preach the word. Sometimes I go pick up my daughter from her job at the Goodwill a little early so I can go in and look through all the discarded. I found the best movies I shared with you. I found a, a great for a dollar, all those Via Lobos uh, violin concertos. Oh, there was a treasure there. Somebody left a treasure. Lucinda Williams, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. What a classic. I hope somebody just put it up in the cloud and, and just shared it with us. I said, I will listen to one song on that album a thousand times before I die. So if this costs me a dollar, that's only a tenth of a penny every time I sing along with that song. It's worth it. Now, whoever had left that Lucinda Williams album there, who Paula and I saw uh, 20 years ago in concert, uh, they had they'd taken the effort to type out some words, of, uh, a quote from her, and they'd put it inside the, the little CD cover. So Lucinda Williams, here's her quote. At some point, you accept your limitations, which then become your strengths. That's how she approached songwriting. I am telling you in this context, there is a limitation on what can be said and delivered from the pulpit. There's a limitation. My message is limited. I am limited to proclaiming Christ and him crucified. Jesus, the Savior. I'd better not seek to innovate or adapt or accommodate the culture. That limitation becomes our greatest strength. That limitation of saying, no, you proclaim Jesus and him crucified. That limitation is our strength because when it happens that people get that and God uses the preaching of his word and people ask for forgiveness for their own sins and they put their faith in Jesus alone and the Holy Spirit enters their life and heart and they walk in step with the Spirit and they read the Bible differently. Boy, the social change that has come about from Christians 
the good things Christians have done as the limitation of preaching Christ alone has affected them, uh, those limitations become our strengths. You skip that, get bored with Jesus and say, vote Republican or vote Democrat or any of that stuff. Uh, all of a sudden, so what? Maybe you get it right. you got a 50-50 chance. And, 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 or you can say, sometimes do, sometimes don't. And what if everybody follows that and does that and dies and goes to hell because they did not respond to the message of Jesus Christ as their Savior? Paul, when he got up to preach this sermon, preached the consistent gospel message that's throughout Scripture. Not different than Paul, not different than Jesus. All of it together. We have one Bible, one book with 66 chapters. And the Bible is consistent and the gospel message is consistent and must be. Understand that. Seek that. God moves you uh, maybe via your job or someplace to another place. You look for a church. What are they preaching? What's the gospel? Where's the doctrinal statement? What's the emphasis? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All this other stuff is added to us. We do. We do change the world. But you start by saying, I'm going to change the world. All of a sudden, who are you? God? God uses us, and God does God's work. So it's all been leading to this. So here's the Tyndale commentary, what they said about this sermon. Listen to this, and then we'll, we'll, we'll break the sermon down a little bit. They said, the address which Luke records is of considerable length. We, we tested that out. It is a lengthy uh, address, a sermon that he gave. It says, it can be summed up as a historical survey designed to root the coming of Jesus in the kingly succession of Judah and to show that the career of Jesus was in fulfillment of prophecy. It culminates in an appeal to the hearers not to repeat the error of the people of Jerusalem who had rejected Jesus. Essentially, they're saying, Paul got up and he said, it's all been leading to this, to this point in time. Verse 18, or verse 17, God chose Israel. He made them strong even when they were in slavery. Verse 18, he put up with them in the wilderness for 40 years. Verse 19, he fought their battles for them in Canaan and he gave them the land. Verse 20, 450 years from captivity to the land, he gave them judges. Verse 21, he gave them Saul for a king. Verse 22, he gave them David for a king. And he said, it's all been leading and pointing to this throughout Scripture. And he was talking to people in their synagogues who would have known and understood the Scriptures. Verse 23, a descendant of David, Jesus is your Savior. Verses 24 and 25, what about this guy named John the Baptist who is out there? Let's talk about him. Let's put it all, uh, all the way from the beginning to here we are, and it all points to Jesus. And then he said, what about this Jesus? What are two key events in the life of Jesus that I'm going to emphasize? First is the death of Jesus. The message of salvation includes Jesus' death. Jesus didn't die. There's no life for any of us. There's only spiritual death. Jesus' death is important. The fact that he physically died. He's the propitiation for our sins. Uh, a fulfillment of scriptures. 
And the text tells us and reminds us that it is possible to read your Bible, to hear the Scriptures, and to not recognize Jesus for who He is. I had a buddy who was in a, uh, one of the mainline denominations, and he, he finally, you know, he got, as an adult, he came to a place where he heard the gospel. He says, I went to church all my life, and I never heard the Scriptures. You know, I was in this church, and he started ripping this denomination a little bit. So I said, hey, I've got a, I've got a, a book from that denomination. I've got a, a prayer book. I've got hymns. Didn't you sing this? Didn't you sing The gospel was here, right? The gospel. And he's like, well, I grudgingly admit, yes, the gospel was there in the liturgy. The gospel was probably there in some of the preachers. I just didn't hear it. I just didn't hear it. It is possible to hear it, to sing it every Sunday and not be saved and not see Jesus for who he is. We talked about his death and why his death mattered. His death as the substitute for his people. The propitiation. We talked about this again Wednesday morning in the men's group. It was in the 50 reasons why Jesus came to die. It's the one that Piper led off with, and I'm glad he did. Uh, the wrath of God poured out on Jesus instead of you and me. And then he talks, Paul in his sermon, after the death of Jesus, he talked about his resurrection, where it says he did not see corruption. Uh, it means that uh, when they uh, would bury the people without the spices and all of those things, uh, in those days they had to do a quick, quick one-day burial. A couple days, third day, all that, your body starts to decompose and, and decay. It's why when uh, my brothers and I used to laugh so hard, it was like our favorite verse in the Bible as little comedian kids growing up in church and here. And when Jesus went out to raise Lazarus, and, and in the old King James it says, uh, one of the sisters, I believe it was Martha, he said, Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> and we would say, you stinketh, you stinketh. And we would say that to each other and, and tease each other as little kids hearing that verse. That's seeing corruption. That's the body decomposing. Paul makes it clear in this passage, Jesus was a fulfillment of Scripture. He did not see corruption. I used to think when I heard that, it just meant he didn't sin. No, it's talking about his physical body. And his body, while others are laying in the grave, even the great David, King David, his uh, eaten by worms, dust, ashes, uh, all of those things, uh, dust to dust, and things that we say ourselves in our services, did not happen to Jesus. He was raised from the dead, and, and God did not allow his Holy One to see corruption. He was truly dead and he was truly raised. The death, the resurrection. And he's talking about Jesus to the people who had the Bibles. And he said, here's where your Bible is pointing to the Jesus you heard about that was a contemporary of yours that lived over there in Jerusalem. And the sermon ends with what every proper sermon, properly preached, must end with. And that is, salvation through Jesus Christ, our Savior. I'd never been, you came up here, I'd never ever been in a church that did communion every week. You know, we didn't do it because those Catholics did that, and it was all wrote for them. And if the Catholics did it, we weren't going to do it as Baptists, you know, in Iowa. So, so we, there was that thing going on. And I thought, what, you know, what's, what's the deal? And I, you know, Talked a few times to, to a lot, years, to, to youth group and all that, but to preach a sermon. 
And one thing I found as a person who never preached a sermon in God's church regularly, that table helped me. Uh, I knew it, it, it couldn't just be jokes or historical or do this or that. Uh, the sermon was leading to the table. It was leading to Jesus, and it was salvation. And that was a good helper for a guy trying to figure out how to preach. Sermon wraps up with salvation, with a call even to make a decision. Verses 38 and 39 in our text. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, this Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes, there's no exception, Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. He's saying, you religious people can be religious. And I'm telling you, religion helps uh, uh, smooth out some things in a culture and in a life. Do I wish everyone was going to church and trying to follow a religion? Be good, be good, be good. You bet. It'd be a better life. The headlines would be different. But it wouldn't free us from everything. It wouldn't free you from everything uh, uh, at all. Because you'd still go and you'd say, God, look what we did in your name. Look what we did. We were good. We were good. We were good. And he would say what he said he would say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. I'm not a worker of iniquity. I'm religious. Uh, You're a religious worker of iniquity, is what Jesus will say to some people, if that's what they're leaning on. And Paul said in his sermon, this gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ frees you from everything that the law can't do. Talks about how he didn't deserve death, but he was killed. He talks about his death being on behalf of the people for whom he died. And he says, you be careful that you don't scoff at this. God is doing a great work. He quotes Habakkuk 1.5 in verses 40 and 41. After he says, turn to God, he says, beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. And he was talking in Habakkuk about how God was going to use uh, total pagans, to accomplish his work, and people scoffed about it and didn't believe God. He's saying, don't laugh at this. Don't laugh at this idea, this truth that Jesus died and bore the sins of his people. Beware lest you just become a scoffer. You see those old foolish people? That dumb old dad or grandpa or whoever believes all that Bible stuff. Man, we are... We are in the scientific age. We are in this age. We are in that. You know what? Be careful. It's a warning sign. Don't scoff at this. And the people in this point that we're talking about, this salvation that Jesus gives, the forgiveness of sins that's mentioned explicitly here, the people said, come back next week and tell us more. This is new to us, and it's exciting to us, and it's interesting to us, and we want to hear more. And he didn't even be able to get out of the sermon. He said, I'll come back next week and we'll we'll come to the synagogue again. As he's walking out, uh, people in the synagogue, Jewish people, God-fearers, said to him, keep preaching the grace of God. Something had happened. Some conversion had gone on in their lives and he's talking about it. And salvation had come. 
Jews and Gentiles both. Verses 48 talk about that, how Jewish people and Gentile people, I've made you a light to the Gentiles. I will say it again. Uh, I'm going to say it a lot in Acts because our pop culture says, oh, racism, race, 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 race. I'm telling you again, God is no racist. And the cure for racism, the cure to see people who are born uh, in different circumstances than you and to get along is to do on earth what they're doing in heaven. They're praising God. The answer and the cure for bigotry and racism, which is a sin, is to give your life to Jesus Christ. And you look at all the people that God has saved. And we are together as part of God's redeemed people. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation. And it was playing itself out even in the earliest days of the early church. Verse 48. Here's the one that makes people the mad, maddest, though. This verse. I'm not going to skip that one. Can't, can't, can't go over that one even in a hurry. I don't think. It says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That sounds an awful lot like predestination to me. If it sounds an awful lot like that to you, it's because it is. And they've tried to shoehorn this thing in every which way, try to make that not uh, there, and they can't get around it. Or maybe the text doesn't, maybe all the text don't. No, pretty consistent all the way through Scripture and consistent in the text. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God is the author and the finisher of our faith. How does that reconcile with uh, him saying, go into the world and, 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 and make disciples of all nations? Uh, my brain's not big enough. I can accept both of them and say God is big, but God is the saver. And as many as God wanted saved that day, no less believed. And then finally, the static. Along comes the inevitable opposition. It's a recurring theme uh, that began in the Garden of Eden. Here's God's word and here's a, 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 a serpent saying, did God really say this? And then later on, after the fall, here's worship from Abel. And here's Cain, the murderer. Opposition continued through countless persecution of real prophets by false prophets through the early days of the church and continuing even now, ratcheting up even now. And there was organized opposition to the proclaiming of the good news of Jesus. And what is the response? One of the best gifts that one of my kids got me last year, I think it was Christmas, but it was sometime. I drive this old car. It's not, not, not so old that it has a cassette player because I can give my cassette to, to Ruth. <laughs> she drives a cassette car. My car's sound system, though, has a CD player, but I could not get my, I wanted my phone. I wanted my Bluetooth through it. I can't wait till, till I get a car someday with a Bluetooth that I can just plug in. But this uh, uh, wonderful child of mine got me a thing that you plug into the, into the, um, cigarette lighter, and it finds an empty frequency. And you can drive around Danbury and Greater Danbury, and boy, I can listen. 
And I, I had that thing plugged in to 96.5. And I was driving my car up to Presbytery, and I had an audio book in, and it was so interesting and good. And all of a sudden, I start to hear this static from my radio, and I'm kind of like trying to fiddle that around. And, and then I finally get in, and all of a sudden, I don't hear my book anymore. All I hear is the radio station from Hartford. And I've got a quick, because I don't want to move my phone because my State Farm app, that it, it, it'll penalize me, and maybe I'll lose money if I'm messing with my phone. So I happen to have some earbuds, and I, I turned the volume down, and I, I pulled an earbud in, and it automatically hooked up, and I, I drove with one thing in my ear, and all of a sudden, I could hear it again. There is static, there is opposition to the Word of God. You can proclaim the gospel. You can be reading your Bible. You can be living the gospel. And it's the way of the world. There is pockets of of static messing up and interfering with the message. In this case, the static that came, uh, boy, they could have gone back every week, you would think. The whole town showing up, people are getting saved, they're doing, and all of a sudden, There's a static motivated by jealousy. These Jewish religious leaders, it says clearly their motive was jealousy. So we we don't have to, we can can wonder about Mark's motive for leaving the group. We don't worry about the motive of the opposition. In this case, it was jealousy. Maybe they had been preaching the law and trying to get Gentile converts to submit to the Old Testament, uh, their their understanding of, of the law without Jesus the Messiah and it wasn't working. There was jealousy, and there was motivation, and there was static, and all of a sudden there's tension, and they're shouting them down, and they're interrupting, and they're, they're saying these things and, and when, when the apostles are preaching. Opposition. It says they got the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city to throw them out of the district. Where's the opposition to the gospel these days? Oh, just name them. Name who controls the messaging in this world. Politicians, press, movie stars, record industry, athletes, professors that don't like the idea, for whatever reason, of a Jesus dying on the cross as a substitute for his people and a heaven and a hell. And it was a drowning out, and they tossed him out of the district. Paul didn't say we've got to change our strategy. We've got to win the culture wars. Gospel wasn't going to win the culture wars. It was going to win the hearts of people. And that's how culture was going to change. But a church was established there, even though Paul and Barnabas were driven out of their district. And it says driven out uh, implies some form of violence. Later on in Acts, we will see beatings, imprisonments, uh, beatings near death, all of those things. There was a violent reaction to the gospel. And the leading lights, the culture, booted them. And how did it end up for them? What was their heart? Discouraged, sad? No, the disciples were filled with the joy and with the Holy Spirit. Because they spoke the truth and they saw people respond to the truth in spite of opposition. Application, conclusion. It's talked about the setting. You have a setting. There's a place where you live. There are neighbors that you have. There are family members that you have. There's an influence uh, way that you have at work. Uh, there, there's a setting for you. 
setting for our church. And our setting is, is what it is. And our job is to do what God told us to do and keep doing that and not to say we've got to accommodate to the culture and water down who Jesus is. There's a sermon you've just heard and you're hearing. There's a question that Paul asked there that's not an inappropriate question to ask in any church where people gather to worship the Lord. It is, are you born again? Are you forgiven? There is static. What is interfering with your own comprehension of the gospel? What's there trying to drown out the words of eternal life and truth in your life? Are you a Christian? Can you take courage from the work of God as you see how the improbable can happen in the lives of religious and irreligious alike? Here's a question. What did Mark miss out on by going home and leaving and not being able to see this and participate in this? Thankfully, he got back into being a part of it, and he was part of a team that declared the good news. Our church, what is our message supposed to be? And I want to remind each of us, each of us here, your life is important at each and every stage. How you interact with the gospel matters for you, for those around you. How you let your light shine before people in such a way that they see your good works and glorify God or how you choose to hide it under a bushel is something God uses as God works his history. I want to say this. I know so many of us have been beaten down. Uh, It's been a crazy, crazy era in Christians and non-Christians' lives alike. And I know there are physical challenges that you have faced. There are financial challenges. There is a pressure. How do people do it who don't know the Lord? How do they do it? And I'm going to just say again what all of us must do, reminding each other, in your families as husbands and wives, if, if, that's, if that's your family set up, with your kids, if that's your family set up, remind us that true joy is only found in this gospel that Paul preached. That's it. And that's what we must continue to do. Revisit this. Come to church. Read your Bible. As they say, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Realize I am a sinner saved by grace, but I am saved by grace. And it's who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And that's where the focus is, and that's what the continual message must be. Let's, let's close uh, with this. Let's go to that table that we talked about. Lord, thank you for salvation. We thank you for the clear voice that comes through. Lord, help drown out the static in our lives. Help us to realize if it's not the gospel that that's the, 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 that uh, it is static and that, that we need to tune into the gospel. We thank you for your Holy Spirit and your work in us as we follow you and live for you. Lord, help us to realize this life on earth is short and it is a breath. And there are stages, and in each stage we get to live for you as your followers. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the table that we are about to uh, receive from.
In Jesus' name, amen.